Good evening. It's exactly 1,000 days since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, and he most certainly would not have wished to celebrate that milestone standing up in the House of Commons and once again apologising to the Commons and the country, this time, of course, for the £50 fixed penalty notice he received from the Metropolitan Police last week. It is doing him damage, and we did see uh, the former Chief Whip, Mark Harper, put in a letter of no confidence today. I'll talk about that later on in the programme. But it's not going to force him from office at this particular moment in time. You see, I think there's a bigger story, and one that is actually directly of more concern to you at home right now. And it could not have been better illustrated than by Keith Anderson, the Chief Executive of Scottish Power, talking to a parliamentary committee earlier today. Set up a new line uh, for people to contact us. Uh, we had 8,000 calls last week alone for people coming through on the number uh, with concerns about ability to pay. Um, and that's us just in the first month, the first few weeks. A massive concern from people, a huge amount of anxiety from people on the phones about what they're going to do and the concern they face. Um, and a real, real worry from them. A lot of people for the first time facing this issue and they've never been in this position before. Come October, uh, that's going to get horrific, truly horrific. And it's got to a stage now where I honestly believe the size and scale of this is beyond what I can deal with. It's beyond what I think this industry can deal with. And I think it needs a massive shift, significant shift in the government policy and approach towards us. Well, that was the boss of Scottish Power telling us that by October, he believes the situation with energy bills will be, and I quote him, truly horrific. He said it's way beyond his ability to solve, but it is in the hands of government. So what can government do? Well, there are two things, three things, really. One, of course, we could start to produce more of our own energy, but we can't do that by October. It will take longer. They could remove the 5% VAT that goes onto our energy bills. That, of course, would be achievable and was a Brexit promise. But the big one, the really big one, is that part of our electricity bill uh, that is known as renewable and social obligations. In short, in simple English, green taxes. And they make up just about 25% of everybody's electricity bill. It said, on average, that's £153 per household. But in many cases, it's a lot, lot higher than that. Now, there are some hints around Media World, around Westminster, some hints that the government is beginning to think uh, that unless we're going to face millions of people defaulting on their bills, maybe the one thing they could do is take off those green taxes. And the debate I want to have tonight is whether that's achievable. Well, I think it isn't just achievable, I think it's desirable. And I think the government have got to do something. They are in far more trouble with the British electorate on the cost of living crisis than they are with Partygate. Of that, I've got no doubt at all. So, I believe they should do this, but politically, is it a reality? Is this politically achievable? Tell me what you think. Farage at gbnews.uk. Maybe you agree it is, or maybe you think it's not, because the Prime Minister is so committed to his net zero obligations that he's not prepared to contemplate it. Well, one man who's done a huge amount of work into these green taxes 
how much they cost, where the money goes, and he's appeared on this programme before, and I'm pleased to welcome back Ross Clark, author and columnist and expert on energy. Ross, good evening. Good evening. Hi. Uh, when you and I were talking about this, uh, and I'm going back uh, a few weeks, we were together, if you remember, on the Farage at Large show up in Dudley, um, and I asked that audience how many of them knew that 25% of their electricity bill uh, was green taxes. Not many in the room knew it. I'm beginning to get the feeling that the country is waking up to this. Uh, do you get any thoughts or hints that the government could do anything about this? Well, the Chancellor apparently did consider doing the, uh, removing these um, environmental and social obligations from bills um, for, for the, 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 the budget just gone, but um, evidently decided against it because we didn't get any um, initiative in the budget on that. Um, you know, it's a huge sum. Um, electricity gas bills just gone up £700. They could double by the end of the year, they could be double what they were last year. Um, 25% of your electricity bill is an awful lot of money for a lot of people. Um, now, these um, environmental social obligations, they're, they're a bit mixture of things um, such as subsidies for um, wind farms, um, solar farms and so on. Uh, some of these go back a very long way. They, they, they relate to contracts which were signed 10 years ago when the, these solar farms, wind turbines were, were built. Um, the, the government can't crush the contracts. They, you know, they're going to have to pay them. Uh, you know, we, we're going to have to pay the, the owners of these farms for, for decades to come in some cases. But the, the, these um, subsidies, they, the obligations, these um, levies, they do not have to be on electricity bills or gas bills, um, they could be out of general taxation. And by putting them on um, energy bills, the government's created a really highly regressive tax because, you know, there's nothing progressive about um, energy bills. On the contrary, people on prepayment meters, some of the lowest earning poorest people in the country, they pay a higher rate than the rest of us do who are on, um, you know, ordinary metres. And, and I mean, that is an absolute disgrace. They're, they're paying a and higher course, rate of these levies than the rest of us. It isn't just domestic consumers that are paying these levies, these taxes. Of course, it's business and manufacturing too. And that is significant, isn't it? It is very significant. And if you look at the input prices, energy prices paid by the steel industry, for example, they're far higher than the same, you know, the energy prices paid by French and German um, yeah. companies. Yes, we are disadvantaging ourselves, and Ross Clark leaves us. The line goes, but I think he'd made his point. We've got one of the top in the world. Yeah, Ross, the line's rubbish. We're going to come back to you over the course of the coming weeks. And I tell you what, I am going to be campaigning. I'm going to campaign. We're going to campaign here at GB News for these green taxes to be removed, to make these energy bills just a bit more affordable for ordinary folk and to help, desperately to help, our manufacturing businesses because so many of those jobs are going overseas because we've made ourselves uncompetitive. Now, Boris Johnson in the House of Commons today apologising for the fixed penalty notice. Maybe the way to think about this is this was the first three points on his driving licence, the first speeding conviction. Uh, but, of course, you know what happens when you get to 12 points on your licence. Yes, you get a ban from driving. And my suspicion 
is that over the course of the next week or two, there will be more fixed penalty notices coming the Prime Minister's way. That's my hunch, because I just think the one that he's been fined for, the birthday party, seemed to me to be the least worst offence that was committed during that lockdown period in Downing Street. And, and when the Prime Minister today said you know, he didn't really realise uh, that, 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 that a law was being broken, well, he was ushered into a room and a birthday cake was produced. That one, uh, I don't think he's guilty of. Some of the others, well, we'll see over the next two weeks. But Mark Harper... Conservative Member of Parliament for the Forest of Dean and former Chief Whip had this to say in the House of Commons. I regret to say that we have a Prime Minister who broke the laws that he told the country they had to follow, hasn't been straightforward about it, and is now going to ask the, men and, the decent men and women on this, these benches to defend what I think is indefensible. I'm very sorry to have to say this, but I no longer think he is worthy of the great office that he holds. Well, let's go to College Green in Westminster and let's join Darren McCaffrey, GB News' political editor. Darren, for a man celebrating or should have been celebrating his thousandth day as Prime Minister, it wasn't a very enjoyable afternoon being called a liar, being called dishonest by the other side and then having his former chief whip say he'd lost confidence in him. Not a very fun afternoon for the PM. Yeah, it was not a fun afternoon for Boris Johnson, having to apologise again and again and again and again. I mean, essentially every single answer for an hour and a half, Nigel, in the Commons chamber this afternoon with the Prime Minister saying that he was sorry, uh, offering an awful lot of contrition. Now, it must be said, first of all, most Conservative MPs are on side with that. They welcomed the Prime Minister's apology. Uh, they also welcomed the idea that Boris Johnson has repeatedly put forward over the last week that it is now time to move on and to focus on the other big issues he would suggest the country needs to tackle, whether that is the cost of living crisis and indeed rising energy bills or what is happening in Ukraine. But that is not to say, as you say, there is opposition. First of all, from the opposition uh, benches, uh, Keir Starmer's speech, uh, I think, really hit home with a lot of people about the personal sacrifices that many have had to make over the last two and a bit years. People not able to see dying relatives in hospitals. This is not akin to a speeding fine or a parking ticket, something that uh, Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Secretary, suggested earlier on today. Something that must be said, the Prime Minister himself accepted this was far more uh, serious, though I do actually take your point about how these could rack up and get life much more difficult for the Prime Minister. But most notably, and probably the most dramatic moment today, was you say it was Mark Harper, the MP for the Forest Team, former Chief Whip under David Cameron, who essentially has now handed in his letter to the 1922 Committee calling for a vote of confidence in the Prime Minister. It's the first time he's gone public on that. So where are we then in all of this, Nigel? Well, I think, first of all, the next moment is going to be on Thursday. The Labour Party did win today a vote in the Commons. They might see Boris Johnson referred to the Privileges Committee about whether he lied to Parliament effectively, whether he misled the House. I suspect the Conservatives will row into line and the Prime Minister will survive that vote. But there are two big things on the horizon. First of all, is the local elections in a couple of weeks' time. If the polls are correct, the Conservatives are expected to do pretty badly across the country, even when they're not defending that many seats. And second of all, as you've rightly pointed out, we could see the Prime Minister back here again, and maybe again, and maybe again. 
<laughs> and I think if we get to yeah. the third or fourth time, many of those Conservative MPs will start to question whether, as Mark Harper put it today, the Prime Minister's actions can longer be defended. Yeah, it's not going away in a hurry. Darren McCaffrey, thank you very much. I'm joined by Philip Blonde, Director of Res Publica Think Tank and former advisor to David Cameron. Philip, good to see you. Uh, we were saying earlier that the £50 fixed penalty notice for the birthday party was a bit like three points on the licence for speeding. But when you get done four times, you lose your licence. Is, is that kind of where Boris is? I think Boris is now is now divided the country, that won't surprise you, um, into those who are sick of this, who've had enough mm. of it and just don't care, who think it's trivial, who think it's been pursued for partisan ends and just it won't make any difference to them. And then another substantial proportion of the country thinks that it exemplifies one rule for them, another rule for the majority, think that he's uh, a persistent liar and thinks mm. that he's unfit for office. And I think that's where we are. We're, we're divided. It isn't clear which side uh, it's going to come down on. But it does damage confidence in him, doesn't it? And it does make him... I mean, I put it to you that it makes him more vulnerable to the cost-of-living crisis, to other things. He is more vulnerable. And here's, here's the political rub. So why I like Boris is I think he is the only leader, sort of it, presently and in waiting, who can deliver for the working class who voted him in. I, don't, I think that the, the others who are in line are a bit like Rishi before his recent uh, travails. You know, the hardcore Thatcherites, they want deregulation. And deregulation won't help the working class in this country. What we need is somebody who's prepared to entertain big, emancipatory ideas that will transform the lives of ordinary people in, the, in this country. And if that's your ask, there isn't anybody that the Tory MPs kind of look over their shoulder and see, ah, yes, that's the person. So he's in power because he's the best that they've got. Now, the trouble is, is Boris is surrounded by people now who are counselling him to return to the 1980s, counselling him to go back to the comfort zone. But he can't because his new electorate didn't vote for him in the 1980s. And if he had the 1980s... They've never voted Conservative in their lives. Exactly. So he has to, in a way, double down and then double down again. He's got to deliver for his new constituency, which is very difficult for the parliamentary party who don't really understand their new constituency. And it's difficult for the advisers. But that's what he has to do. And if he doesn't do that, I think this will get him in the end mm. because people won't support yes, him I mean, enough. If he stops delivering, Mm. And if, as you say, millions of people mm. who in the Midlands and the North are not traditionally Conservatives, uh, if they see their lives getting worse and getting poorer, I just wonder, I mean, I know he's on to net zero, I know it means a lot to him, uh, but the truth of it is that onshore gas production would produce tens of thousands, up to 100,000 well-paid jobs right across those red wall constituencies. Of course, and it's an intermediate f fuel, and it's better, than, it's better than coal, and it isn't a swift way so to So why nuclear. won't he do it? Because he's surrounded by contradictory advice. 
Really what he should have done and what Sunak should have done is have a windfall tax on the companies uh, for energy who's got so much money to quote them they don't know what to do with to essentially, <laughs> because they're a monopoly... A labour uh, idea, uh, uh, too. Uh, you know, well, you tax monopolies, right, to equal out the competition. And at the moment, there was no good reason not to do that. It's an ideological aversion by the Treasury. And so, really, if he wants to save his premiership, which is worth saving because his constituency are worth saving. Mm -hmm. He's got to shift at scale to bolster his base and to deliver for his base. Now, you might say that the migration rules that he's brought in are part of that, and one could argue that, and actually, as mm. the polling has shown, that the hard line was indeed popular. Mm. But now he's got to turn to what he, to the cost of living, to yep. good jobs, to delivering on levelling up, and, and delivering for families, delivering for people who are trying to look after children, delivering on skills and education. Can he do it? Yes, the ideas are there, the policies are there. But what he, the, his difficulty is he's surrounded by different people, the support of all of them he requires. So he's in a very difficult position. If he goes one way, he isolates his party and makes himself more vulnerable. But the truth is he doesn't have a choice. If, if, if he doesn't make an, uh, you know, a philosopher once said, it was Nietzsche, the error that most people make is they make one bold move and don't make another. And actually, Boris needs to make about three bold moves. Fascinating. Philip and Long, then fascinating. he stays in power. Fascinating, but he's got to be bold. No, yes. I get that. Decisive. It's yes. got to be real leadership. I get it. Thank you for coming on and joining us. In a moment, we will talk about escalation in Ukraine, in Donbass in particular. I know it's difficult to know what to believe, but we're going to have. We're going to have Admiral Chris Parry with us. He'll help us through that. The cost of living crisis could be horrific by October, so says the boss of Scottish Power. What is the government going to do? Is it achievable to ask them to remove green subsidies on our electricity bills? I believe that it is. Let's see what you think. Keith says, if wind is now the cheapest, there is no need to subsidise it. Yeah, well, the problem with all of that is, of course, that, you know, wind's great when it works. But when it doesn't work, I'm afraid we need other things. And the more wind we rely on, the more gas we're going to need to burn. Another says, it's very achievable, simple to do. Will they do it, though? Do you know what? Actually, I think they're in so much trouble on this cost of living stuff. I think they're going to be forced into doing it. Rob says, yes, all green taxes should be abolished. It isn't sustainable for the ordinary person. Another says, definitely achievable and should have been scrapped sooner. VAT on energy bills should also be abolished. Gary says, if they were going to do it, it would have been done by now. No, not necessarily. Look, uh, the fact is, if wind energy is all it's cracked up to be, why the hell does it need subsidy? Now, Ukraine... We're hearing that the Battle of Donbass has begun. That is according to President Zelensky's spokesman. Uh, there's talk of giant tank battles. There's, of course, continued talk of what could be a very large death toll in Mariupol. What seems clear to me is that Putin is going to go all out uh, for that Donbass region, for the land bridge that goes to Crimea, and that he's looking for a big win ahead of the 9th of May 
when it's going to be the big parade in Moscow, the big national day. We call it World War II. For them, it's the great patriotic war. It's the biggest day of the year in Russia. Putin wants something to show for it. But it is so difficult with all these news reports to really cut through and work out what is going on. One man whose view we trust and who studies this very closely is Rear Admiral Chris Parry, former Royal Naval Commander and strategic forecaster. Chris, can you give us some idea of what's really going on in eastern Ukraine right now? Well, Nigel, you summed it up pretty well. We've discussed this before. Um, I think uh, once the maximalist agenda that Putin wanted, which was toppling the government and obviously capturing Kiev, wasn't possible, uh, he's actually done what he really wants, and that is consolidated the Donbass region. He wants that land bridge to Crimea, uh, if possibly like Odessa, but the sinking of the Mosfers put uh, paid to that, I think, because he won't be able to do an amphibious landing. But what we're seeing right now is huge bombardment of Ukrainian positions and cities and towns in the Donbass region and to the west of that. You're seeing the Russians attacking on a 300-mile front with armoured uh, uh, battalion tactical groups. There's 70 of them, probably not enough, actually. Now, the key thing in the south, Nigel, is it's all steppe country. In the north, it's forest. In the middle, it's forest and steppe. Not great for armoured warfare, but actually armoured warfare suits in the south. And with the appointment of this new commander-in-chief, Dvornikov, I suspect you're going to see a lot more combined arms activity from the Russians, from the air, uh, combining their infantry with their armour uh, and being a lot better uh, at what we call these combined arms operations. Where I think the Ukrainians probably have got um, the edge is disrupting their supply and logistics lines. And certainly the counterattacks that I've seen in the last three days by the Ukrainians are looking to sever the one road, actually, that gives them all the stores and supplies the Russian need. Um, and that'll be the critical issue as to whether they can cut off and encircle the Russians as they advance. Um, meanwhile, I'm afraid the cities of uh, Ukraine are taking a huge pounding from Russian missile uh, artillery uh, and other strikes. Uh, bizarrely, Odessa isn't being hit. So I don't know whether that's because Russia wants to retain it for cultural, economic or political reasons. But right now, or, or it may simply be they've run out of missiles. Um, but right now, Odessa seems to be clear of attack. But Mariupol, Mariupol has been, as we understand it, under sustained heavy artillery and air attack and, and talk of a very high civilian death toll. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt. I mean, you know, I think we have to remember that the Russians weren't very squeamish about killing Ukrainians in the 1930s. Uh, they're not too squeamish about doing it now. Mariupol effectively has become the mini Stalingrad of this, this conflict. It's symbolic. It lies right at the heart of that land bridge that yeah. uh, uh, Putin wants to establish. So it's really important, both for symbolic and strategic reasons. So he wants it. And he doesn't care whether he flattens it in the process. He wants the real estate. It's as simple as that. Um, and we're going to have to watch the Russians even more closely now because they're committing more and more war crimes uh, as they try and achieve, as you say, these objectives by the 9th of May. Assuming that this war remains conventional, and it sort of sounds to me like it's 1945-style warfare, uh, the, you know, the first time we've seen it since then in Europe, but assuming it does stay conventional, have the Ukrainians, in your view, a difficult question I know, but have the Ukrainians, in your view, got sufficient kit, equipment, 
manpower and will to resist? Nigel, I've got no doubt they've got the will. Uh, I think it's been an example to all of us as to how to resist aggression and tyranny, to tell the truth. We've got to keep supplying uh, the Ukrainians with enough kit to at least hold the Russians within their current positions. I think Putin will seek to freeze the conflict. He may even absorb what he's captured into Mother Russia uh, after the 9th of May. Uh, That's a different problem, recapturing territory. Right now, Ukraine has to hold its own. It has to be able to stand up as a credible, independent country. Uh, And certainly, enforcing uh, Putin into a frozen peace, uh, they, they can do that. But the real problem we've got is they're running out of artillery ammunition, and they have 152 millimeter. We have 155 millimeter. That may not sound much to a non-specialist, but you just can't fit that sort of ammunition uh, in the guns and things like that. But you know, the, the Ukrainians are producing their own ammunition. They're producing their own munitions. Two Ukrainian-built missiles hit the Moskva. You know, they're doing all right. We just got to keep them going. Let them know they're not going to be abandoned. That's the main thing. And I'm afraid to say the pusillanimous statement by the the German Chancellor just now absolutely dreadful. Yeah. Well, what do we expect, Chris Barry? Thank you very much indeed for joining us and giving us that analysis. And sticking with the theme of the German Chancellor, indeed the European Union. Let's talk about the European Union, shall we? Yes. In 2014, after Crimea, the EU introduced their arms embargo on arms sale to Russia. Not that that really stopped anything, because actually in 2020, we'd seen by then a 56% increase in the amount of arms sold by European manufacturers, many of them German, uh, to Russia. And indeed, at the start of all of this, uh, we were told there'd be a total, total halt on arms sales from the European Union countries into Russia. Well, I can tell you, they ceased just 11 days ago. They were quite happy for the first 40-odd days to go on selling arms to Russia. And the great thing, I always think, with the European Union is don't listen to what they say, see what they actually do. Now, my what the farage moment, this is incredible, isn't it? I mean, restrictions have been lifted, we can travel. Yes, of course, there's lots and lots of COVID about, but we're getting back to normal. We're getting on with our lives. Well, not all of us, because the civil service have decided they don't need to do this. And some of the figures that have been produced are just extraordinary. The Department for Education has just a quarter of its staff going into the office on average every day. Department of Work and Pensions, 27%. Foreign, Commonwealth and Development, 30%. There are other civil service departments with more. Um, And one, of course, thinks about the DVLA and all the problems people are having, getting driving licences renewed, people suffering financially because of that too. And I'm really pleased to see that Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's the Cabinet Minister for Government Efficiency, is ordering a rapid return of the civil service back into their offices in Whitehall and elsewhere. And I have to say, this whole work from home culture is a con. It does not increase productivity. I think that's baloney. I also think right across all jobs, whether they're in the private sector or the public sector, it's really unfair, particularly on young people, because how else can young people learn other than being with older people with experience? I don't believe in work for home one little bit. I really, honestly, truly don't. 
out of the civil service uh, at our expense are frankly taking the mickey. So, Jacob, I wish you well with that battle. Some more thoughts of yours on green taxes. One viewer says, it's our money, so we should be eligible for financial support when needed, and we desperately need it now. Another says, all green taxes should be abolished. Same goes with all of the ULEZ and CAZ zones. Yes, I know. Um, and, and not to mention, in London, low-traffic neighbourhoods with roads during the pandemic particularly being closed in many parts of London. Ryan says, this is achievable, but why on earth was this not in the government's energy strategy? Because they haven't had an energy strategy, that's why. And Roger finally says, it's essential that this levy is removed. Well, thank you all for your thoughts and comments. And I, I actually think that politically, I think we can put enough pressure on the government to get them to act on this. Now, coming up in a moment, it's Talking Pines. Let's have a little look at who my guest is going to be. I'm Sharon, I'm 25 years old, I'm a civil servant and I'm from Oxford. So at the moment I work as an operations lead for the Department of Transport and working on EU exit policy. In my past life, outside of work, I was a beauty queen. I was Miss International UK in 2018. Yes, from working on EU exit, a civil servant, one of the ones who clearly went into the office, to being on Love Island, to receiving a huge amount of online hate and abuse and now very much a campaigner joining me on Talking Pints in a moment is Sharon Gafka. As I said before the break, Sharon Gafka, civil servant, Love Island star and now a campaigner. Let's see a little bit more of her on Love Island. I'm Sharon, I'm 25 years old, I'm a civil servant and I'm from Oxford. So at the moment I work as an operations lead for the Department of Transport and working on EU exit policy. In my past life, outside of work, I was a beauty queen, I was Miss International UK in 2018. The fact that, you know, I do beauty pageants and I like to wear makeup and wear nice clothes to work and I'm quite colourful, I think it puts a stereotype in people's minds that I'm probably not all that intelligent and I don't really know what I'm doing. I find in my relationships that my assertiveness and my like strong sense of self can probably get in the way sometimes. Maybe some guys feel a bit emasculated by me. The right guy, the confident man, would be able to accept that and take that in his stride. <laughs> well, welcome, Sharon Gafka, to Talking Pints. Thank welcome you to the programme. And I have to say, you're the first person <laughs> that I've had on this programme to what for a pint of white wine. We don't, <laughs> we don't normally criticise our guest drinks, but uh, what's the reason behind that? Um, so this is a running joke between some of my ex-colleagues and I. Um, on the original date of Brexit, I thought it'd be really nice to get my team to the pub because, you know, it's been a stressful few months. Um, because there was protests going on. They had no wine glasses. It was plastic cups. So I've been drinking wine out of a pint glass. Um, and I thought I was big, keeping up with all the boys, but obviously wine is significantly stronger than beer. Yes. And the night went downhill very quickly. <laughs> so, yeah, this is the running joke. <laughs> and Department for Exiting the EU, and without wishing for you to betray your former colleagues, it seemed to me that almost every civil servant I met believed in Remain, and they were vehemently opposed to Brexit. Am I right to think that? Um, I mean, you are to ask me that. I'm, I'm very much a Remainer. 
And I know yep. that's something we disagree on, but yeah, so I'm very much pro-European. Still? Still very you, much pro So you're a rejoiner? Yeah, I'm 100% down as a rejoiner. Yeah, well, no wonder you're in the civil service. <laughs> and, and what about them? I mean, what about some of these civil service departments? You know, only 25% of the Department for Education back in Whitehall. That can't be right, can it? Are you asking about post-COVID? Well, I'm just saying, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, most people are back in offices and the civil service seem very reluctant. Um, I, I mean, I, I can't speak, obviously, now because no. I'm not in it, but no. um, I don't think there's a reluctance. I think maybe because... I mean, I don't know. I honestly can't give you an answer. To no, I mean, I'm just shocked by it. But look, the thing is, you were doing that job, Department, yes. department for Exiting the EU, as a Remainer, under a Remainer Prime Minister. I mean, no, <laughs> I mean, no wonder it all went wrong um, and took so long. But how did Love Island come along, the opportunity? Um, Love Island actually started off as a bit of a running joke between my friends and I, um, you know, working in Westminster, I was living my best life, um, and all my friends were settled down. So we just thought, oh, it'd be a bit of a running joke to get me on there. I'd be very different to any other contestant that's been on there before. Um, and the joke kind of got a bit too far. And yep, I got a phone call saying three weeks later, you're flying to Mallorca and you're going to go into the opening lineup of the show. And the show is a sensational success. I mean, the numbers that watch it, um, the, the, the number, I know the number of young girls that watch it and just desperately their dream would be to be on Love Island. What was it like as an experience? Um, I mean, yeah, I find it strange that it's people's dreams to be on that show. Oh, it for me, it, it, it wasn't my dream. No. I, you know, it was a running joke between my friends and I. And I think it was, it was what I expected it to be, you know, like there's a lot of direction from um, producers and things like that. But, you know, it's a group of good looking people in a villa all summer, so, I mean, what is there to expect, to be honest? <laughs> <laughs> Did you enjoy it? I enjoyed it. You know, I think I missed out on, like, girls' holidays when I left sick form because, um, you know, my mum was ill and I went to Westminster and went to work straight away, so I felt like I missed out on that experience. So, for me, it was like reliving 18-year-old Sharon a couple of years down the line. And did you prove that intelligent people, too, go, into, go on Love Island? I mean, a lot of intelligent people have been on Love Island. All right. Um, maybe I'm just a bit more... I think some of the intelligent women that have been on there before are a bit more softly spoken than I am and probably not as opinionated as I am. So that's probably where I'm a little bit different. Yeah, and I mean, people who've been on Love Island, they tend to, you know, they tend to get involved in, 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 in all sorts of celebi type things afterwards, some of them very successfully, some of them not. But you've kind of got involved with campaigning in many ways. Now, I mean, anyone in the modern world that puts their head over the parapet you know, whether it's doing Love Island, being in politics, whatever it is, can expect on social media a certain level of abuse. I think it's impossible to think that you're not going to get some level of abuse. But just explain what happened to yeah, you. Um, I mean, the producers do very well in, like, kind of telling you, well, setting your expectations that there will be some level of trolling. And I think that's why they put a lot of psychological, I wouldn't say lack of better word, tests um, to check that you're you're going to be able to handle it because of how big the show is. Um, for me, I experienced a lot of racial abuse. Mm. Um, you know, things that were aired on the show that were outside of my control. I received a lot of abuse for that and, you know, a lot of death threats. I think that's one thing that I dis didn't necessarily expect from the show. And what was the, what was the means of this? Were these through tweets or, or, or um, Facebook posts? Or, and how was it done? So, I mean, I don't really use Facebook, but I did see some Facebook posts about me about previous jobs that I've had when yeah. I was younger. Yeah. Um, most of it came through Instagram DMs. Um, a lot of it, you know, I think 95% of it came through Instagram DMs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And how did it affect you? 
Um, you know, it, it, you have your ups and downs. I think now, if I was to get a similar kind of message, I would just brush it off because I'm, I think I'm so like numb and used to it. But I think at the time, especially with COVID going on, you know, with travel restrictions and rules, I had to sit in quarantine for five days. I live on my own. So when you spend five days in complete solidarity, mm. all you have is to look at And your you're phone. reading this stuff. Yeah, and I'm reading every single message, everybody's opinions about me. And I think that's what was really, really hard. And then, you know, it's not just like, you know, with people that aren't in the public eye, it's just a message. But then you have um, press and media on top adding to it. Like, I think I got one comment on a photo calling me a catfish and all of a sudden it was big widespread on the Sun website. I was a catfish in terms of my photos. So, um, yeah, it's not just people. It's also the added pressure of media as well. Now, Nadine Dorries is, is talking and pushing very hard for this, you know, online harms bill. Um, and it's very tough, isn't it, to know where do you draw the limits on this stuff? Because, you know, free speech is obviously very, very important. Um, a little bit of abuse is probably acceptable in the real world because it is the real world and people aren't perfect. It's very hard to legislate, isn't it, for this? And very hard. How do, I mean, you know, these social media companies that we're talking about here, the names that we've mentioned so far, on, and there are others, TikTok, and I mean, I know you're very active on that as well. I, I mean, these are just the most enormous companies. Uh, there are billions of people using these platforms. Uh, you know, what should government do? Where, I mean, how do you see, where do you see uh, the line, Sharon, on this in terms of what the law should do? I mean, I, I, I expected you to be an avid um, argument of the free speech. Side. No, I am, but yeah, asking, yeah, no, I, 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 I absolutely that. am. And I, and, I, and I do generally take the view sticks and stones may break my bones. And I think we have to learn to live with a bit of abuse. But I also accept that, you know, persistent, large scale, frankly, bullying of people online is going to do them a lot of harm. So, and, yeah, so I mean, with, so, so, so I get that, you know. Yeah, with all due respect, Nigel, you know, my I very much work with young women's charities. My focus is yep. on protection of young people and young women, yep. especially on the internet. Um, there is a very fine line between criticism and abuse. I'm open to people criticizing my actions um, and things like that. When you send me death threats, I've received voice notes from teenage boys telling me they're going to kill me. Yep. That's that's very much no freedom of speech whatsoever. Yeah. And also, you know, one thing that I really do care about this online safety bill is that cyber flashing is now made illegal. You know, as part of the bill, I receive probably on average two unsolicited photos a day. Mm. Um, that's not freedom of speech to anyone. No, no, sure. And, you know, if somebody walking down the street took <coughs> their trousers off, they'd be arrested. But why is it OK to do that to me on social media? Um, and, you know, the sanctions that I think the online safety harms bill put in place is that it puts financial sanctions onto big corporations that don't don't follow their own guidelines. You know, if I report something to Instagram's TikTok, does it really get picked up? Not really. I don't know. They're so big, it these firms. It's, it's, it's yeah. a plaster put on a big wound, to be honest, and that's how I see it. You know, my season of Love Island was part of the Instagram trial where words were filtered. Words weren't really filtered. Not in my experience, anyway. Otherwise, mm. I wouldn't see half the stuff I saw. No, listen, you obviously care very much about it, and I understand yeah. it. No, no, I get it. There are limits to free speech. Of course, there are. And incitement, violence, all of those things are beyond the pale. And the other campaign, Sharon, that you got yourself involved in, which is just beyond my comprehension and thinking, uh, is this whole business of the spiking of girls' drinks. But then that's gone even a stage further now, too. And I've read about reports of nightclubs of people actually being jabbed with syringes. What the hell's going on? 
Yeah, I think that's why like my campaign is so important because a lot of people that I've met and spoken to that um, have been running campaigns on this for almost 20 years mm. have mainly focused on stopping drink spiking, you know, like putting drink covers on drinks and things. And I think it's actually not tackling the problem. It's just skirting around the bush. Um, so and that's why we're seeing increasing numbers of injectable spiking. So it's just beyond comprehension. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, one of the things that I, that's why I'm so passionate about online safety is because um, I talk about very passionately about spiking, about police prevention and spiking and things like that on social media. And I get a lot of young men commenting back saying, I don't know how to take a joke. I have no sense of humour. I'm sorry, but this is not funny. Really? Yeah, all of the time. And I think one of the things I went to David Hudson <coughs> about was the lack of education on drugs and, you know, consent in terms of sex education. You know, 10 years ago, I was sat in a classroom learning about this hmm. and I'm getting inundated with messages from boys and girls 10 years later and they're still not having it. Um, and, you know, there's const it's constantly in the news about drugs, about sex. Like, why are we not educating, you know, these... These beliefs are taught and learned and not... Is, the, is this sick behaviour a product of the internet? Uh, it could be. It, you know, I think that there is um, a part to play in, like, what porn is available mm -hmm. um, and things like that. And I think it's very much, you know, targeted towards violent intercourse towards women. And I think that, you know, that's where people start to see these things and, like, learn these traits and... But, but, I mean, to spike a drink or to, to inject somebody, I mean, this is to remove their ability to consent, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's not just about sex. It's also about, you know, I've had 1,500 testimonies when I put out um, a request on social media because I wanted to write a formal piece of evidence to the Home Affairs Committee. Mm -hmm. um, it was a variety of different reasons, you know, 14 to 65, male and female, um, not just for sex or for assault or theft. It was, you know, their friends putting a drug in their drinks. They thought it was funny. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, for me as well, I really want a solid piece of legislation that covers that because... These victims aren't protected. When you go to hospital, if you know, if I put something in your drinks, I think it's a joke. You're not protected in the eyes of the law, really, are you? Um, and so that's why I think it needs to be really more proactive and we really need to tackle at the early ages as opposed to starting when it's too late. You've clearly got the campaigning bit very firmly between your teeth. You're very passionate about it. So what next for Sharon Gafka? Is it politics? Is it heading up big campaigns? It's not going back to the civil service, clearly. <laughs> Um, you know, I would really much love to see myself as a member of parliament one day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I definitely see that as where my career is going or some kind of investigative journalism. Um, but yeah, I think definitely not standard influencer or things that you see from Love Islanders. Well, I can tell you what, Sharon, I think you've got every chance of becoming an MP. Um, I, can, I can spot them a mile off. <laughs> no, but I can. I can see bright young people who are going to do that if that's what they want to do. Uh, you'll find that it's uh, a job uh, you could earn a lot more money in the private sector, but that's not why you go into it. The right reason to go into it is because you actually want to change things. It's not because you want rank and position and title. It's because you actually want to change things and you have passions. Um, and you'll get even more online hatred and abuse, probably as a member of parliament. But I think it's great. I think you've uh, the way you've used that bit of celebrity in Love Island and you've, you've, you've used that to get out there and campaign for things that you care about and things that really matter. Um, and things, and I have to say, I think it is actually pretty horrific and pretty sick what, what, what some, no, not all, but what some young women are being put through. So I want to thank you for joining me on Talking Pints and commend you and wish you luck with your campaign. No worries. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> very good.
It's time for Barrage the Farage. We've got a couple of minutes left, and I know you send in questions for me, but you always send in now questions for the guests. So, Millie asks, here we are, straight to you. Sharon, do you think Nigel's head would turn in <laughs> Casa <Casarabor>? oh. <laughs> Um Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I definitely think as soon as them girls walk in, head's going to be turned straight away. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fraser asks, should the civil servants go back to the office or continue with some flexibility to work from home? Look, I get the point about some flexibility. I just think if 25% of the Department of Education, if that's all that is back in Whitehall, that is a Mickey take. Flexible working, I guess it, to fit in with families, to fit in with the modern world. The concept of work from home, I don't think is good for productivity. And as I said earlier, it's not good for young people who need to learn from older ones. Joe asks, what is your favorite beach in the UK? Sharon, a favorite beach? I'm gonna say Cornwall. Yep, anywhere in Cornwall? I honestly I have no idea. I've only well, been there a couple of times. It's not I'm not very specific. I'm not very well travelled in the UK. <laughs> well, I think Cornwall actually is a fantastic choice. There's a little beach called Pozeth. It's just north of Padstow. It nearly always has the most amazing waves coming in. And I'm not a surfer, but even I can manage on a bodyboard, and it's a hell of a lot of fun. One viewer asks, which politician? Did you find the most disrespectful and arrogant towards you? Well, Sharon's not in on this question. I certainly am. Um, I think the most disrespectful... Oh, gosh, there were so many um, in the European Parliament. I think probably a Belgian fella, Guy Verhofstadt, with the big teeth and the long hair, the, cartoon the cartoonist dream. I think he was the worst. Last question. Jamie asks, do you think Boris will resign soon after May the 5th? That depends, I guess, just how bad... The results are. It also depends, does he get a lot more fixed penalty notices? Does he get up to 12 points, as it were, on his driving licence?